How's it going, Jim? It's tremendous, Ashley. It's tremendous. Um, well, welcome to the round barn, everybody. Thank God we don't call it the square barn because everybody's got a square barn, but we have three round we barns. We have three awesome round barns, which drove by on my way to work every day, which I love. Uh, I have a very important question for you. Yes. Do you eat eggs? Yes, we eat a lot of eggs. What kinds of things do you like to put in your eggs in the morning? Like I like kale, lots of kale, and then just one egg in the middle. None of that surprises me. <laughs> the bacon, I put the bacon on the eggs, bacon or next to the eggs. the eggs, yeah, or sausage, or yes. Scrambled? Yeah, I'm a scrambled guy. Okay, not just the, I just drop it and wherever it falls is where it goes and sometimes has a little piece of the, what do you call that, shell? The shell, yeah. No, 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 I, I, I'm, a, I'm just scrambled. Okay, I see. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim Lowe. And I'm Dr. Ashley Mytek. And welcome to the Round Bar. I think we're going to talk about eggs and chickens today because there's some exciting things going on in the chicken world. I don't know if they're exciting, but they're going on. So in the news, um, I saw, well, at the grocery store, I saw the price of eggs went up. And in the news, there's some avian influenza thing happening what is going on with that Ah, uh, the flus so we have avian influenza we have a massive avian influenza outbreak and then not just a avian influenza outbreak but a high path avian influenza outbreak what does that mean when you say high path so it's highly pathogenic it causes a lot of mortality and so um we should maybe just talk about flu for a minute, right? So we think about the flu and people get the flu. And so birds get the flu and pigs get the flu and dogs get the flu and cows get the flu and horses get the flu. When we say flu, does it mean, does that mean influenza? It means influenza. And is that all the same virus? Yes, mostly. It should be mostly. So let's talk just uh, two seconds about flu. So when we think about influenza, there are big groups of influenza. So we think about influenza A and influenza B and influenza C and D. And those are kind of big and they're ge big genetic groups. And so they're related but not related, right? So they're really different species. And then within each of those types, and what we really worry about is influenza A mostly because that's the biggest group and that infects birds. That infects people and that infects pigs. And so there's a lot of cross-species transmission of that. But why flu is so interesting is, is that it's uh, a segmented genome. So it has eight parts to its genome and it can play mix and match. So these parts, so like we normally think about, right, like when we have genes and we transfer genes or on chromosomes, but you get all or nothing, right? You get half from mom and half from dad. Well, that's not... And when we think about bacteria dividing, right, and we're thinking, oh, well, it divides in half and they get all their genes from one. Well, in the case of influenza, because the genome segmented, if I have a cell infected with two viruses, you get a combo. It's a mix and match out the back end. So we call that reassortment. So that's the interesting part. And influenza changes very rapidly. But, right, we had the 18, 1918 pandemic, and then we had the 1976 pandemic, and, oh, yeah, we had this little pandemic there called swine flu in 2009. The 2018 pandemic was avian in origin. So it was an avian virus that came to humans. And birds are the natural reservoir for um, influenza A. 
And so when we think, and this is, remember we talk about the H1s and the H3s and N1s and N2s, and so H1, N1, all that stuff. So that's the outside proteins, and that's how we name them. So when we think about humans, we really think about H1 and H3. There's two H types, and I think there's 18 H types in, in birds. So in seven N types, and we think about two N types in, in people and in pigs, so in domestic animals. So it's just this huge reservoir. And so waterfowl uh, tend to be the, re- are the reservoir, the natural reservoir for influenza. And occasionally that influence, those influenza are from waterfowl making into domestic poultry or, you know, backyard poultry flocks and commercial poultry. How does it get from a duck or whatever waterfowl species it's going to be? It is into- ducks. It's ducks. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it get from a duck into a commercial chicken flock? Duck poop. Duck poop. Oh, I thought you were thinking like the duck sneaks in. No, he's no, he doesn't break in at night. Oh, it's not like he you know. He doesn't have the bandit outfit on. No, and no, 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 no. There's no bandits. Uh, the even the banded ducks are not. That's not why they have bands on. No, it's different. Okay, so how does the poop get in? We don't know. I mean, so clearly there's a biosecurity break. And so um, the virus that's floating around in chickens right now or uh, in poultry is uh, highly pathogenic. So the interesting part, we should go back. In waterfowl, none of these avian influences are, are pathogenic. They just transmit. They don't cause any disease. So they're easily moved. And when they get introduced, right, they can cause disease in these commercial poultry because they're not resistant. So we know, well, you asked the question, how does it get in? We don't know how it gets in, but we do know how it moves. So flu moves with birds as they migrate. So all these migratory bird, all these waterfowl are migratory, right? So we have birds fly south in the in the fall and they fly back north in the spring. And historically, that's we've seen these outbreaks in the spring as those birds start to migrate back north. And so we know that the birds, the flu um, circulates in the northern regions as far north as the Arctic. Um, and then as those birds migrate south, they will pick it up. But as they come back north, the amount and number of infected birds is expanded because they gather up in the south and then they come back. And so while this is probably the stress of migration, they use a tremendous amount of energy, their stress, they probably shed more. Nobody really knows. That's the theory. So uh, we've historically seen these outbreaks in the spring. And so everybody thought this was coming. Because we saw an increase, we do a lot of surveillance, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but we do a lot of surveillance, and that surveillance picked up um, H5N1, which is the high-path AI that's currently circulating uh, last year. So we saw a little bit at wildfowl last year, last spring. Now, here we come this spring that we've got outbreaks. There's just a lot of infected birds, and so we're getting in, uh, getting in these commercial flocks. You mentioned this isn't that much of a shock to people who were watching this. So let's talk about the surveillance and how do you do surveillance on wild birds? We have a quite an elaborate surveillance system. It's a, it's a fascinating group. So uh, USDA leads that. Uh, and there's a lot of other people that help. So USDA Wildlife Service is involved. Uh, they have an active surveillance program uh, sampling birds in the flyways. And then supplementing that are a lot of other researchers. So uh, our group works with the what's now the CI, uh, CEIRR, the SIR network. It used to be SEERS, but it's a Center of Excellence for Influenza Research and Response. Uh, and that's a network of research institutions 
across the U.S., and we work with a group out of St. Jude's in Memphis. So the cancer people also have no infectious disease, big infectious disease group. Um, we should talk about that. Let's be a whole discussion sometime, the m magic work they do down there. But we've partnered with them now for quite a while, and so we don't, we're involved in the pig side of that, not the bird side of it, but the Sears Network does a lot of ape flu and work along with USDA. So what we do is they go in and sample waterfowl um, spring and fall every year, and there are people who just go out on a boat and are like catch a duck with a net. No duck catching. It's in a jet. Yes, in the, the, jet. In the jet. Yes, they the have the duck jet. No, no, no. They don't have a duck. So they do two things. So birds, unlike people and pigs, shed the virus in their poop, not in their respiratory tract. Interesting. So it's an enteric disease in birds. Um, and so it's shed uh, in feces. And so they can sample water uh, where these birds are nesting or where we have duck hunters. They go out and sample those where they're, where they're hunting ducks. So they'll pull ducks in that have been harvested and swab those ducks. So it's a combination of that to get, uh, uh, to get the samples. And then we use all these fancy molecular techniques that we have today that are pretty useful. So we can go in. They can use a PCR test, a polymerase chain reaction test, which is super sensitive molecular test, and say, is it there or not? So we talked about a segment in genome. There's eight segments to that genome, and they can look for one of them, the matrix protein, which is conserved. It's the same all the time, so it's easy to detect. So we got a yes-no test. And then they grow that virus uh, in cell culture or in eggs, uh, grow it up, and then we sequence that. So we get the genetic code out of that virus, and we can say, oh, what's there and which changes are occurring and where is it at? So in this surveillance network, which is thousands of samples a year, most of which are negative, and they, they find a lot of flu, but what's interesting is, ah, did we pick up a new one? And what we found was not a new one, but a increased prevalence of this H5N1, this Guangdong H5N1 virus that's been circulating for quite a while. And then when they find that information and they have a heads up, hey, this might be coming down the path here pretty soon, I'm, I'm guessing there are a lot of smart people working on this. Did they put in any protective measures to try to ward off this becoming a big thing, which it's turned into now? So, yeah, so they let everybody know. So all the poultry people know. And we had one of these in 2015 as well. Same virus uh, resurged in 2000, or occurred in 2015 that's resurging now. We didn't have as good of warnings then, and our biosecurity wasn't a good, and it was really a train wreck. So um, I think I looked uh, here just a little bit ago, and so this is uh, early April, but we were about 24 million birds infected in the U.S. Wow. today on 154 different places, different locations, in 24 states. So, it, right, when we have these birds flying around, right, they all gather up down by the equator and then they fly north and they span out in the flyway. Uh, and then they gather back in the Arctic. So that's spanning. They've got a western flyway, a Pacific flyway, a Mississippi flyway, which we're in the heart of, and then the Atlantic flyway up the, up, up the eastern seaboard. But those birds generally are all kind of in the same place in South America in the winter. So, and they all go back to the Arctic. Um, and so they move up and down. And so we fanned this out across the U.S. And so I think the farthest west one's in Wyoming. There may be in west of that, but all the way to the east coast. And so we're seeing sporadic infections in both backyard birds, so people that have chickens, uh, and in commercial flocks. The vast majority of birds are in commercial flocks because these facilities are so large today. 
Um, so 99.9% of the birds are in commercial flocks. But um, the number of premises, about two-thirds of the premises are commercial and a third of those are backyard. So we had a case here in McLean County in Illinois, which is not very far from us, but I think it was eight or ten birds or something. It was some people with chickens in the backyard. And they're outside, right? So uh, you knew that happened, so that makes sense. So I guess I didn't answer your question, which was, are we prepared? Um, yeah, we told everybody. But not to be political or anything else, right? We saw how well our COVID mitigation strategies worked. Not, not going to win any awards there. Uh, and so it's the same thing. Even though we put our guard up, there's not a vaccine or they don't use a vaccine for H5N1. Why, why isn't there a vaccine for something like this? Um, we can make a vaccine. It's a question that we want to eradicate it from uh, the U.S. commercial poultry flocks. So the poultry producers have said uh, we aren't going to tolerate high path AI. And if you vaccinate, it would likely become endemic. You couldn't sort out the infected from the non-infected herd. So they said this is an eradicable disease. We're going to eradicate this when it happens. Um, so that's been a very conscious decision made by the National Poultry Proven Federation, which is or program NPIP, which is a joint activity between USDA and the poultry industry to make health decisions about the industry. And so they've said, mm, we don't want this around, so we're going to eradicate it. So that's why we don't have a vaccine. Could we make a vaccine? Yes, but the vaccine would cause endemic disease, and we don't want endemic disease. And when a farm... How many chickens are on a typical commercial farm? 100, 200, 1,000? So it depends on what kind of a farm. So we have two kinds of chickens in the United States, right? So we have chickens that make fried chicken, so broilers, which is kind of funny because nobody's broiled a chicken in a long time, right? They're, we call them broiler chickens, but they're really fried chickens. So we make fried chicken and chicken breast out of right? So those are meat birds that we're growing for meat. Okay. And so there are tens of thousands of growing chickens on a site. So when you infect a premise that's got growing chickens on it, there are tens of thousands. Then we have the other chickens, which are layers, and they make eggs. So that's a different kind of chicken, and those birds tend to be in the north. So um, broilers tend to be in the south. They like warmth, and so we put them in houses in the south. Uh, Layers tend to be just because they take a lot of corn and they need to be housed inside all the time and they can be dark. They don't care because we regulate their light. That's an Iowa, Minnesota, Indiana thing. Um, so there's a lot of chickens north. And so uh, when we look at layers, we're not talking tens of thousands, we're talking hundreds of thousands of birds uh, in a complex. And so multiple houses, um, you know, sometimes a couple hundred thousand layers in one house. Uh, and then multiple of those houses on a site. So, And when they get a positive bird flu case, what are their options on the farm to deal with that? So per USDA, they're all euthanized. Okay, so that's probably a big undertaking to depopulate a... Yeah, they've, uh, unfortunately, they've gotten good at it. Okay. Um, and so it's interesting, right, as we think about welfare and working through these things... Um, we used to, almost all the layers were in battery cages. So you'd put three birds in a cage and they were stacked. They were called batteries because they were stacked on top so that the egg would roll out to the front, but the chickens in the layer above were stepped behind the layer below. So it looked like a stacked battery, like a um, artillery battery that they'd be stacked so that the manure would fall to the ground, the droppings would fall to the ground, not on the chickens in front of them or more importantly, the eggs. 
And so as we've gone away from battery cages. It's really important the poop doesn't fall on the chickens. That's exactly right. Well, yeah. And Who cares you, about the eggs? You well, can you wash don't, them, right? Uh, no, you still contaminate with salmonella. That's why the battery cage was such an advance because the egg was clean and we didn't have to worry about it. That's, I mean, as we've gone to cage-free, and really that's become another challenge, but as we've gone to non-cage-housed birds, non-battery couch herds, one of the first challenges was how do I keep the eggs clean for food safety? Oh, all right. Well, this maybe is a conversation when we have, when I get my own backyard chicken flock yes. here pretty soon. Watch out, world. My tech's getting chickens. But my understanding is that if you wash, if you don't wash the eggs in your backyard flock, they can be out of the refrigerator for four weeks, I think, or something like that. But anyways, I thought that there's some, there's a bad thing that happens when we wash eggs. That is. That's why we don't want to wash them. I see. But we so, don't, we do wash commercial eggs or we do not? No. Okay. okay. That's the, the, but so that's how do you keep the egg clean? Keep the egg clean. Don't get the poop on it. And don't right get now. the poop on it, right? That becomes a challenge. And so as we've gone to... Um, Non-battery cage housing, free housing, right? I mean, there's all kinds of configurations that cage-free eggs. I couldn't think of the phrase. So we've gone to cage-free eggs, right? One of the challenges is how do we keep the egg clean from a food safety standpoint? It's not that the it's not that the egg, the part we eat, is contaminated. It's that the outside is contaminated. And then we handle that, and then we don't wash good, and the next thing you know, you've got salmonella on the outside of the egg on the shell. I see. And I contaminate the kitchen. And so if I don't, right, then I touch the egg after I've cooked it. And so it's a salmonella concern. And so they had to figure out how do I build a layer house that doesn't have battery cages in it that keeps an egg clean for food safety. Well, now we're saying, how do we euthanize those animals? <laughs> because they're now free. So there's been some real challenges figuring out how do you work out the uh, euthanasia techniques um, in there so that they're, they typically use foam, a carbon dioxide foam. So they use carbon dioxide basically, but that foam contains it so it can, the birds can't get away. So it increases the carbon dioxide concentration and stuns them. And it was easy to do in a battery cage because you just get it over the top of the battery cage. And now if you put it in an open free house and they've got perches in there, they just get on the perch on top of the foam. And so now you've got a welfare nightmare that you can't euthanize animals. And so they, they've worked those out. And I don't know what they've actually done, but there's a big active uh, amount of work in that space to say how do we clean up those kind of problems and move forward and make sure that we can get the animals euthanized, get the house cleaned, let the house sit down, and then repopulate those houses so that your egg prices don't go up. That was the place where I was going to go. Is So we're seeing a fairly significant impact on the poultry industry because of this. And what are we going to see economically in the future now with the price of eggs and the price of chicken meat um, in the grocery store? If I knew that, I'd be in the Bahamas drinking Mai Tais, not talking to you here. I mean, that uh, the people that know that stuff, if you knew that, you'd be a billionaire, right? Because you could figure out how to work the market. But I think there's a lot of pressure, and we've talked about this before, there continues to just be a tremendous amount of pressure on food prices. Uh, this will not help. Um, we've got tremendously high grain prices in the U.S., part of that because of what's going on in Europe with this war and, and Ukraine, and Ukraine and Russia are huge 
wheat exporters particularly, but a bit of corn. We've got a short crop in South America putting a lot of pressure on grain prices. We've got just massive demand. Uh, and so those grain prices will percolate through to the grocery store inadvertently. We're going to then you've got this reducing supply of birds. Uh, we've had drought in the West reducing the supply of cows and low prices. And so um, the number of wean calves going into the feedlot industry or for steaks is going to be reduced. So uh, there's a lot of things that say there's a lot of pressure on food prices that I don't think are going to come off that um, aren't going to get fixed quickly, right? This agriculture is a long production cycle. So I think we're uh, eggs are going to be not cheap for a while. That would be the big take home. I can see that. I think that I'm going to have to keep paying more for my eggs in the grocery store the next few weeks at least. My Maybe prediction. the next few years. years. Oh, no, no. Um, can this avian influenza, is there a concern that a human can get it? Yes. That's the big fear. But it's so unlikely um, so it's, it's possible, but not probable. Does that make sense? And that's, but, so there's a bird problem, but remember the 1918 flu was a bird flu before it got in people. And so, and the virus is circulating in humans today, the outside, the H and the N, which are the two bits that stick on the outside are strictly human today or human swine mammalian, right? We can't, we used to think there were human lineages and swine lineages, but uh, that's pretty mushy anymore. There's mammalian lineages is what it looks like. But the internal, those six internals, uh, the other 16, some of those are avian in origin that are in humans today. And so there is a fear that it would jump, but it's pretty hard. We have a different receptor. So there's a specific receptor. So for the virus to infect a cell, and we started learning about receptors when we talked about COVID because the ACE2 receptor and blah, 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 and we had to have that, and you heard all that discussion early. Well, flu is a sialic acid receptor, which is a different kind of receptor. But there's, well, there's lots of configurations. There are two that are important for flu. There's one that is in birds, and there's one that is in humans. And pigs have both, except we now know that humans also have both, but the location is different. So the infection of pigs or humans with these avian flus is pretty hard, um, that's why we do all the pig surveillance, actually. We're looking for ish which viruses are in pigs. But the real root of that discussion is um, what viruses from humans might we find in pigs or what viruses from birds might we find in pigs? Because, it's again, it's how do you get a zoonotic, a pan, you know, this pandemic potential for viruses. So could it infect humans? Yes. Is it likely? No. It, this, can I ask you a philosophy question? Sure. Are you a philosophy guy? Sure, I can be. I stayed it, at Holiday Express once. It seems like, right, so I'm a dog cat girl. Mm -hmm. You're a mostly a pig guy. Yeah, like cat. Yeah, I'm, I'm, but pig, yeah. cow, chicken. Yeah. Yes. Like no, no, I don't do poultry. Guy. You don't do poultry. We, we won't talk about my grade in poultry class in vet school. Okay, you and I probably got the same grade. I got a, also a really bad grade in parasitology. That's not my thing, but that will save that topic for a different That's yeah, another whole, what we did poorly in vet school. We could have yeah, a whole, we'll yes. Have a, we'll have a talk on that. But um, so it seems like in dog and cat world, we see infectious diseases, but not to the scale or not to the degree that you see and you run into with these huge implications that you see in the swine industry, um, beef industry, cattle, blah, 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 yeah. and um, birds that we're talking about now. And 
Um, I guess my, my question is, it seems like the swine industry is always one disease away from catastrophe or significant catastrophe, whatever you want to call it. And the poultry industry is one disease away from this influenza outbreak, right? Where people are probably losing millions, maybe billions of dollars right now because of it. It seems like those industries, and and this is just me as an outsider, are very, they're reactive, right? They wait for the outbreak and then they're like, okay, let's put the brakes on this, right? We have to depopulate the farm. Do you ever stop and think is are we doing it right? Is this just part of raising animals in the way we raise animals that we will continue to see infectious disease have the ability to mutate and be, it's always going to be ahead of where we are. But I think there's two things. One, yeah, you sit back every day and say, are we doing it right? And the answer a lot of days is no. Right. But, um, I think on a much more practical kind of what's the average age of the patient that you see average age probably i think most of my patients today are probably somewhere between eight and 11 year old dogs older dogs yeah so the average age of the patient i see that is three months okay so food animal veterinarians are the pediatricians of the veterinary world so you've got kids right and so why do little kids go to the doctor earaches snotty nose Yada, 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 right? So pediatricians still deal with a lot of infectious disease. You know, a generation ago, before we had a lot of good vaccines, um, and that's really why St. Jude's started, and that's a whole story, right? But they started with infectious disease for kids because that's what kids were sick and died of. So Danny Thomas started that really to deal with infectious disease for little kids. And so um, because we deal with Little, little little animals, neonates, right? Uh, juveniles. Uh, we still do infectious disease all the time, and so um, some of the the viruses, these some of these RNA viruses, like we saw with COVID, can move pretty fast, and the vaccines may or may not be that good. Um, often the diseases aren't disastrous, but they cause economic loss, and so often we're worried about you know economic loss and pain and suffering more than more than really death. Uh, but it's uh, we're neonatal we're pediatricians. That's what those of us in the food animal space do. We don't work with adults very much. A very small percentage of the work we do is with adults. Um, and when we do adult work, we're really OBGYNs on the human mm-hmm. side. And so, right, but that's that's the adults we keep around our breeding animals and the and everything else. You know, eighty percent of the population is is juveniles, and so. That's why we see, that's why it seems like, oh, why do you do infectious disease? Well, if you did only puppies, your mix would be that different, right? Yeah. Than if you did 10-year-old dogs. True. What do you think we're going to learn as we kind of wrap this up? What are we going to learn from this outbreak, especially coming off of COVID? Is this, is this going to be handled in a different way? than it was handled a few years ago because of maybe things we've learned with COVID or the awareness about virus and virus control? Um, This is going to sound... We we could have learned a lot from watching avian influenza outbreak controls if we used those techniques in COVID. I see. Okay. Um, One of the consequences of doing it a lot is we're quite good at it. 
And so what we know from these outbreaks are we're not dragging it between. These are all new introductions. So if we have 154 infections, it's not that poultry flock one infected poultry flock two. It's poultry flock one got infected by ducks, poultry flock two got infected by ducks. <laughs> so our biosecurity ability to contain that is just radically improved to where, you know, even 10 years ago, we've gotten really good at that. So uh, I don't know if COVID's going to change what we're doing. I think those of us that do ID all the time could have had a few IDs on probably what wouldn't work with COVID. Um, but uh, so I don't, I don't know if that's going to change, Ash, but uh, we get better at this. We will never get biosecurity right. We don't really understand how infectious diseases move all the time. We like to think we do, but um, sometimes the bug's a little smarter than we are. Well, I think on that note, We'll wrap this up, and um, I think you should try kale on your eggs next time. I'll stay with the bacon. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening, and we'd love to hear from you, too. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Round Barn one We may even share your comments on our next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing, we also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians too. You can learn more at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. See you soon.